When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello folks and welcome to the Metallica Report. I'm Stefan Shirazi, editor of the band So What magazine. And I'm Renee Richardson, director of philanthropy for Metallica's foundation, all within my hands. This is your official weekly Metallica podcast, the only inside source, bringing you all the news from the band's HQ and studios deep in the heart of Northern California. And massive thanks to the Spotify fans who weighed in on their favorite Metallica memorabilia. You guys, you're all serious collectors. Yeah. Brian Silver goes way back. He has the famous first photo of Metallica taken by Bill Hale with the original signatures, Lars, James, Ron, and Dave. And then there's this one from Paco Ortega, Lars's towel. Uh, yes, the sweat and snot towel from Anaheim Ew. in 2009. Although, look, I think we should probably say... A sweat and snot towel, not the sweat and oh, snot towel. God. Okay, I believe there's more than one, but yeah. it doesn't negate how cool it is to have one. I think it's cool, right? I guess if you're into uh, that. I, that seems like a total pre-COVID kind of thing to me. <laughs> well, I think it is, and I think the thing that makes it super cool for Paco as a reading is that you know it was the first time he made it to the rail. And he says the whole moment was ecstatic for him, which explains his joy at receiving a snot and sweat towel from Lars. Oh, nice. <laughs> and guess what? His cousin caught it all on video. The moment <laughs> lives on YouTube, apparently. So get scrambling out there and look it up. <laughs> oh, right, right. All right. Seriously, snot towel notwithstanding, Evan LeBon wins, in my opinion. He's got the no parking sign that was posted in front of the building where he lives in San Francisco for the pop-up gig that the guys did at the Independent on September 16, 2021. And Lars signed it for him. I think that's a very cool thing to own. Yes, uh, that was a wild show. Wild show indeed. So yeah. A great piece of memorabilia to have. Again, thank you out there, Spotifyers. Keep on taking the bait from us, please. <laughs> You keep serving up the answers and we'll keep hitting them into the airwaves. So onto this week's show, because as yeah. we said last week, this week, we're getting deeper into that old school Metallica history with more from last week's special guests, Ron Quintana, Brian Liu and KJ Doughton. Yeah. And as promised, we have a couple of cool deep dive stories in this episode, including what it was like to headbang with one very intimidating <laughs> James Hetfield while listening to his own band, Metallica. And today it's kind of an abstract thought, but I think we established last week that such was the scene. Everybody was in on ground zero, sharing whatever moment was going down at the time. That's absolutely right. And you know what's cool? As this episode is coming together, my phone rang, my actual telephone. Mm -hmm. It does sometimes, you know, still get a phone call once in a while. <laughs> on the other end, running all sorts of errands, I'm sure, in the car, was Kirk Hammett, who wanted to give us his take on Ron, Brian, KJ, and a couple of vibes on the scene from his perspective. Talk about a fortuitous conversation, Steph. It's great. 
And as ever, Mr. Kirk Hammett was colorful in his memories. Here he is talking about Ron Quintana, and he also throws in the name Ian Callen, another of the very important early Metallica scenesters in the Bay Area at the time. When I first met Ron, I was really excited. I was like, all right, you know, this guy's a mover and a shaker. He knows a little bit more about the music that we love than that most of us do. You know, he's done his homework. He, he must have been there first. You know, he must have dove in first. And he, he's a lot more committed than all the rest of us because he started a band scene and has a radio show. So, you know, what that said to me was that he was a major supporter, progenitor of this weird type of subgenre of hard rock that we were listening to. I met his colleague, Ian Callens, who was the other guy responsible for Rampage Radio, and he was also responsible for Metal Mania, along with Brian New. And so Ian introduced me to Ron, you know, and said, this is the guy who you want to give a demo to. He's the guy who's writing this crazy fanzine that we were all reading called Metal Mania, and it was like the funniest fanzine in the world. And it's just like, you know, they talked about all our favorite bands. Ron Quintana was one of the most approachable people in the entire scene. He would talk to anyone. It didn't matter if you had been around, you know, years or just days. He would talk to you with the same amount of enthusiasm, and he would give you his complete focus. And it was because of him that prompted Exodus to go record a demo. So hang on. I think it's really important what Kurt gets into next regarding Ron's influence on Exodus, because that's one thing this scene did. It supported itself. It supported, and everyone supported each other. I mean, you know, Jesus, Kirk is the lineage, it seems, through the entire Barrier Thrash scene, but that's a story for another day. Uh, anyway, check this out. We knew about his radio show. We knew about Metal Mania. And so I remember Gary and I were talking to him, and I said, how can we get into Metal Mania? How do we get on your radio show? He says, do you have a press kit? We're like, press kit? No. And he goes, you know, well, first you need a press kit. You need to, you need to like, have a demo. You need to, you know, have a promo shot. I can play the demo on the radio show. I can put a picture of you guys in a magazine. So literally, like, you know, that weekend, we went out. Exodus went out, and we went out to a graveyard and shot a bunch of publicity photos. Gave one to Ron. Ron put it in the magazine. And literally, a couple weeks afterwards, you know, we pulled our money together. We all had measly jobs. But we were able to, to get enough money to, to record, you know, a three-track demo. It didn't sound the best, but it was something. And Ron didn't really care about sound quality back then. If you had a demo and it was somewhat <laughs> listenable, he would play it. And Rampage Radio came on at like, what, 11 o'clock at night and ran to like 4 or 5 in the morning, something like that. And, and so it didn't matter what the stuff sounded like, you know, because it was in that time of day on a college station where, you know, they play anything. So it was, it was, a, a, it was a perfect situation if you're an up-and-coming metal band and you want to ingratiate yourself into the scene quickly, Ron was the man. And so the Exodus attack was born. They were such an important part of the early scene, and I, I think it's just cool that we got Kirk talking about that story. So moving on, Brian Liu is probably one of the most articulate, polite, and mild-mannered people you could ever want to meet, right? So when Kirk talks about him in this way, I just started cracking up because I had no idea he was such a gatekeeper of poserdom. <laughs> I cannot reinforce uh, more how amazing this next clip is, because uh, if you know Brian, I cannot imagine this, really. But then maybe I can when I think about it. Anyway, yeah. 
he took everything really, much more seriously than Ron Quintana did. <laughs> he was much more serious about the music and who qualified to be a part of the scene. And Brian New was the man who to say, okay, yeah, this is happening. This band's great. Oh, no, these guys are a bunch of fucking posers. Also, there was both a bit of silliness to it. And even though that Brian Lou was like probably the most serious out of, out of the three, he wasn't that serious. <laughs> wow. Again, Brian uh, just being the dude enforcing the the poser laws kind of <laughs> kind of a great image. <laughs> I'm gonna have to tease him about that when I see him next, actually. But look, hey, before Kirk took off, he did also tell us this about KJ. KJ is all about business. <laughs> KJ just wanted certain things done, you know. He had a vision for what needed to be done, and he would say, "Okay, guys, this is what we need to do." So, okay, okay, KJ. You know, he was very important in the beginning because he was like a central point for all the people who weren't local or Metallica fans who wanted to interact with us. So KJ Down, it was like the station to go to. And there we have it. Kirk stepping up with some uh, fun memories. Uh, it, was, it was very cool. And he was he was pretty stoked to be talking about it, I could tell. I love it. And, and we're going to have more from Ron, Brian, and KJ as Metalla History Part 2 continues. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And we're back. But before we get rolling again, I got to just marvel at the echo on Het's voice in that bit of whiplash we heard before the break. Just epic, right? It's a, it's a bit much in my opinion, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. It got my air guitar out though and I was just, it's so good. It's so cool. But anyway, look, it does segue perfectly into this famous photo we want to get into from the old days of Brian Lou and James Hetfield headbanging and air guitaring. You can find this photo on the internet and in the book Murder in the Front Row too. It is the definition of awesome, and it reminds me 
the next time the two of them are in the same room, we're going to have to try and recreate this moment, I think. Anyway, look, here's what Brian remembers of that magic time. So the picture of us air guitaring, it's actually James and I and a couple other friends, Rich Birch, air guitaring to Kill Em All the first time we heard it. And it's amazing to me, like, James is air guitaring to his own album. And that's not meaning he's egotistical or anything. It's like, that's how excited he was that they had recorded an album. That's how excited we were, like, these guys recorded an album. Because, you know, for me, Metallica were the first band I ever met who actually put an album out. They're actually, you know, to be honest, they're the first band I ever met, period. And the fact that it was them, and I met these guys on the sidewalk in San Francisco, and they had a cassette demo out, and then fast forward a year or something, they had an album coming out. And so, like, that moment, it's fucking special. It's like, it's all of us celebrating our friends recording an album, and it's also, like, the band celebrating they had an album. And, like, it could have ended there. It could have just been, like, wow, remember those guys Metallica back then? Like, those guys are super cool, and, like, they had that album out, but... Who wouldn't fucking known 40 years later? Here we are. Trip on that. Just trip on that for a minute. What an amazing moment in time that they took in together. It's just, it blows my mind. It also makes me wonder how much more air guitaring and headbanging they did and to what that Brian hasn't uh, talked about. Yeah. 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 Maybe, uh, yeah. maybe the next time me and you run into James, we should ask him and say, hey, do you remember a uh, headbanging that you did with Brian Lou? Let's flip the tables the next time we see James. Absolutely. I think you're on. Now, Metallica, we know we, they love music. They love to help as much as be helped. And here's KJ as he remembers one of the bands the guys were really into. Clearly, Lars was very much smitten with the guys in Armored Saint as far as a band and their music, loved him. And on occasion, I'd be in Oregon and I would do what he told me to do. As you said, he was Commander Lars. So I was out there, the foot soldiers sending out stuff to people. But on occasion, something would grab his attention and he'd feel really passionate about it. And he sent it to me. And I remember opening the mail one day and there was this promo copy of March of the Saint, their first record. And it was in a white sleeve, an inner sleeve, and he had handwritten all of the different songs on the outside of the sleeve. So here was this copy. It had no cover. The record really hadn't come out yet, but Lars Ulrich had handwritten basically the, <laughs> the table of contents on the outside of the, uh, the white sleeve. Anyway, it was a pretty good album, but he thought it was amazing. To my mind, when I heard the record, the Michael James Jackson production sound, I thought was a little flat. I love the band. I thought the stuff was great. Anyway, I like Delirious Nomad better, their second album, but Lars swore by the first one. He loved it. And on occasion, I would hear him humming Mutiny on the World. I think he really enjoyed that song when we did touch bases during that time. And some things never change. The passion for music and ever Commander Lars. It's okay for me to say that, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I mean, it, we got to say, I mean, he just gets stuff done. And, yeah, and, uh, and he, he always dropped into that mode to get stuff done, driven by his enthusiasm and his passion. And, and that was the way that things did get done was because... Yeah. He made it happen. Yeah. And we also all know that Lars doesn't discriminate when it comes to music, right? He is truly a Renaissance man. And Ron Quintana confirms that was actually the case, even in the early days. Just listen to this. I would have to agree with that. He's been a Renaissance man since I knew him. He was into all kinds of other stuff. He was hardcore, new wave British heavy metal bands, but he liked other bands. He didn't mind listening to other types of music. And he liked a lot of pop stuff, which surprised me. I didn't mind U2. I liked some of their songs, but he really liked them. And he liked Talking Heads. 
and he he seemed to really like them. And so I was just getting into them, and they later became one of my favorite bands. Lars would put life during wartime on the turntable at every party because this ain't no disco this ain't no party this ain't no fooling around <laughs> this ain't gbgbs you know it's a great song and i think he felt like that living in well el cerrito you know it was surrounded by rougher areas where you'd hear gunshots late at night and that's kind of the gist of that song, Life During Wartime. Life in 1979 for The Talking Heads and David Byrne was pretty intense. And I think he, he totally identified with that. I think it even mentioned something about having three passports. So I think Lars could definitely identify with that because he had traveled so much and he probably had two or three passports, way more than all of us Americans put together probably by that time. Again, you're just left with this amazing visual, right? Mm -hmm. This amazing uh, <laughs> vibe. And again, you're thinking of Lars and, you know, he's had his iPod out on this on our show several times. And Yeah, it carries over. But yeah, I mean, look, you know, just to throw in there, I mean, you know, this was also, Lars was listening to Bob Marley at this time. I mean, Christ, Lars saw Bob Marley live, which blows my mind. I still can't believe that. But, but anyway, I mean, there's so much more to dig into uh, in the future with Lars and his uh, eclecticism, I think we would call it. But it, yeah. it's... Truly, yeah. It's fantastic. But, you know, I also have to say, I love that Ron had this to say about Cliff and his tastes. Oh, my God. We were such Discharge fans. And Cliff was surprisingly into the faster, punkier bands like Misfits and Discharge, which just rounds out his musical panorama. So Cliff's total palette of listening to all kinds of bands, especially Discharge, Misfits, and other punk bands. And Discharge was definitely our favorite just because they were so damn fast. They were so damn intense. And they played Ruthie's around this time in early 83. And they were so on top of everything. I think they influenced those guys so much. James, Cliff, Lars, and Kirk's just so much. And they were so good. And they they were even evolving. Discharge was was getting even more extended songs. They weren't doing the one-minute sound blasts. They were doing The More I See and all these other, Born to Die in the Gutter, but longer versions that would go off into these grooves. And those grooves definitely influenced Metallica. Man, I just hearing that just brought me back. The first time I ever saw these guys was in 1984. I've told that story before mm -hmm. in Paris. And I distinctly remember being in the van, like one of those transit vans, whatever. And Cliff was blasting an anti-Nowhere League tape. And he was, I mean, if his head wasn't actually making contact with the dashboard, <laughs> it, it was certainly getting pretty close. So and he great. was just a flailing hair and arms yeah. and fingers. You know, there was actually in the first paragraph that I ever got published in Sounds back then in 1984, I made note of that. It was such an impression. So when Ron brought up, you know, because we talk about Cliff's eclecticism as well, a wide range of musical taste, but to hear Ron like zero in on the punk. Yeah. And it's cool. It was just, a, yeah, and it just brought me right back. It brought me right back to that. Yeah, that's very cool. I wish I was there with you. Now, we all remember there was a full-on reunion at the Metalla Mansion in Berkeley in April 2016, as well as the Rasputin's Records gig. But the first time such a reunion was assembled by the band was for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2009. Everyone traceable was flown in. They were put up, and they attended the ceremony together. So it seems fitting 
that this is the place where we round out this look back at the old school days and we're going to let Brian take it away. And I got to tell you guys, this shit warms my heart. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction, I have to say, is probably, if I had to pick one moment in being around and knowing this band, that was the one moment that is my favorite because, you know, we all got invitations to attend the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony in Cleveland. But the thing was, I was asked to kind of help the bands find people. And literally, I realized what they had done was looked at the thank you list on the Kill 'Em All album because the list, that, a list of names that I was given was literally people from the thank you list on the first album and you know people who they couldn't find people like bulldozer bob and some of the other old bridge militia people in new jersey who i only knew by name and legend and thankfully i was able to track down many of them unfortunately there were some who are no longer alive like bulldozer bob which is unfortunate because it was that's always a name where i read his name on the kill em all liner notes and it fascinated me like guy in New Jersey named Bulldozer Bob like who is this guy like and I never got to meet him in person but I met some of the other old bridge people and you know it meant a lot but that's exactly it like you know instead of inviting their latest celebrity friends to attend their ceremony they went back to the deepest part of their past and found like fanzine writers from not only from the Bay Area but you know people from Europe and journalists from Europe and people who supported them on their earliest days touring Europe, the earliest days on the East Coast, the earliest days in the Bay Area. And like, you know, I, I think it speaks volumes that those are the people who they focused on having to be with them for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean, it, it, it still kind of blows my mind. Yes, indeed. What a gesture, right? I mean, that I, I believe, if I remember, it was at the House of Blues the night before this massive party. But, you know, That's Metallica great. and their friends being truly them mm -hmm. from the very beginning to, to right fucking now. It is amazing. And it's something to sit back and think about because it is so goddamn rare in this world, uh, kind of in any world. And what a way to wrap these two pods up, right? Thank you for that oh, uh, finisher, Brian. I'm almost, I mean, I am sad it's all over. And But if I can just interject that what makes me so proud is that you can hear how much this band cares about the people from their early day friends and supporters. And, and you see it run through today to the fans today. So it just makes me very proud. This is called Creeping Death. Death. Is that a oh, that creeping death you just heard? The great tempos as well, i got to say, by the way. It's from the Kill em All Deluxe Edition. If you don't have it, you really do need it. So off you go. Make sure you get it. Thanks so much again to Ron, Brian and KJ. And I want to make sure to acknowledge the many, many people who are so vital back in the day and who may not have got the name check they deserve. It ain't because you're not cherished and appreciated by all. It's a time issue. It really is. And who knows? Maybe we'll get to do this again sometime soon. I hope so. I sure hope so. But for now, this is all we have time for. So until next week, 
See ya. The Metallica Report is produced by Metallica HQ, Pantheon Media, and PopCult. If you like what we're doing here, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to visit Metallica.com podcast to submit your questions, offer your thoughts, and become a part of this podcast. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.